Welcome to the Breathe, Sleep, and Be Well podcast, where we uncover a hidden epidemic right under our noses, an epidemic that most often begins right after birth. We aim to engage in casual conversation in a way that raises awareness, exposes misinformation, and challenges us to understand that just because something is common does not mean that it is normal. There is a difference between not being sick and being well. In our goal of maintaining a casual conversation format, we hope that you, our listeners, will engage in the conversation through our platform. Our cardinal goal is to provide easily accessible yet accurate information to the public at large and facilitate a discussion between the healthcare provider and the patient in a way that targets root cause of common diseases and dysfunction rather than merely managing the symptoms. I'm your co-host, Brendan Cruz, and I hope to bring an understanding of social media and communication to highlight my father's journey over the past 15 years. And this is my co-host, Dr. Mark A. Cruz, who has been connecting the dots and teaching on this complicated subject since 2006. To learn more about Dr. Cruz, view his curriculum vitae at markacruzdds.com biographical hyphen profile. Without further ado, here's the conversation. You know, the topic really is nothing new. It goes back, actually, over 100 years if you call through the, uh, the, the literature, uh, both in medicine and in dentistry. But in the last few decades, it's changed. The focus has changed as a function of a very siloed, highly specialized healthcare system in the West, at least in the United States and Canada, that largely focuses on symptom-driven care. And so I actually have stepped back to look and focus more on root cause. And as a dentist, um, I have an understanding of craniofacial growth and development, how our faces grow. And, and so dentistry is the one discipline in healthcare that knows the most about this very specific topic. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with breathing? It actually has everything to do with breathing from how we're born and how the airway develops from uh, and influenced by environmental risk factors. Okay, so I know sleep apnea, a lot of people don't sleep well. It has a lot to do with their breathing. How does breathing translate into poor sleep? How do people sleep poorly, in other words, because of their breathing? Yeah, that's a really um, interesting question. Um, first, I would say that obstructive sleep apnea is what's called an end-stage diagnosis. It's the most diseased version of a spectrum of disorders that may start with, say, an innocent snore that progresses eventually to full-blown obstructive sleep apnea. It's kind of the analogy I would use would be looking at cancer, stage one cancer, or carcinoma in situ, stage one cancer, stage two, stage three, or late stage, and then metastatic cancer. So it would be what would be considered analogous to a metastatic cancer. And, and so the focus in medicine and 
also in dentistry has been really on what I argue is the tip of the iceberg. It's the end stage. Okay, so what you're saying is that that's a, a problem a lot further along, but there might be a lot of people that have a problem. They don't have sleep apnea, but how is their sleep affected by and, their breathing? Exactly. And therein lies the problem is that it's not recognized because until it becomes metastatic, quote-unquote metastatic, until it becomes late stage. And yet um, the base of that iceberg, if you will, is what's called upper airway resistance syndrome or inspiratory flow limitation or even more specifically and descriptive sleep fragmentation. So people who don't get good sleep, even though they're perfectly healthy, that has sleep in fragmented pieces where they're not able to go through those uh, sleep cycles the way nature intended and that results in many signs and symptoms, both dental and medical. I hear this big descriptive name and I automatically think it doesn't apply to me, but how common is this? Well, there's pretty good evidence that today it's a pandemic problem. It's very common. So if we just look at a couple of studies looking at, say, malocclusion, it's a fancy dental term to describe where the face doesn't grow quite correctly and there's dental crowding, so the teeth are crooked. In fact, it's, it's, pretty a, common. it's a multi-billion dollar industry to, I say, treat the wrong problem. Because crooked teeth is really nature's way of solving a problem, and yet we look at it as a problem to fix because it's not cosmetic. What problem well, that, is it trying to solve? Well, uh, to be able to chew and function and bring the teeth together in a way um, that, uh, in a deficient jaw. Um, so the teeth end up becoming crowded. So who cares? You could still chew food, right? Still bring uh, bring it, your upper and your lower jaws together, although it may be not cosmetic subjectively from, from the public's point of view. But I guess the point I'm making is that um, malocclusion really relates to our breathing because it portends to unstable breathing because there's not enough development of the airway. And the crooked teeth is just one small sign of a root cause. And, and so um, when you have a small caliber airway and you fall asleep, it tends to collapse and breathing becomes more labored. And with a healthy individual, their autonomic nervous system is constantly waking them up. By the airway collapsing, do you mean snoring? Well, that's one uh, common form of, of that we can recognize. In fact, the snore is because the muscles that make up the airway and that tissue just starts collapsing, getting smaller and smaller, creating turbulence. And that turbulence causes those tissues to flap and we hear it as a snore. Mm -hmm. We never had that problem five, six hundred years ago. So if you snore, your airway is collapsing? No question. How do you fix that? Well, I mean, it's, it's, there, there are many ways of addressing that. And again, it depends on 
the magnitude of the problem and the age, how long has this individual had this problem? So an, an infant or a two-year-old that snores is very different than a 60-year-old that snores. Right. Although it's the same turbulence. So how you fix it really varies. And we look at structure, function, and behavior. When I say behavior, I'm talking about breathing behavior. It's behavior is physiology in action. It is conscious, but it can also be subconscious. Um, specifically though, maybe the question I should be asking is not how to solve breathing, it's how did, or how to solve snoring, how did it become a problem in the first place for people that snore? Well, there are really good studies and there's a renewed understanding now that it could start right after birth. Um, so, as Christian Guimineau from the Stanford School of Medicine, one of the giants that's now passed, um, actually identified and um, showed that when an infant is born, they go from fetal respiration to breathing in an environment of atmospheric um, pressure, air pressure, very different mechanic, that they breathe only through the nose. They can only breathe through the nose. They cannot mouth breathe for that first three to four months of life. And typically there's this very short period of time where the nose is congested and the kid has to figure that out and that congestion needs to abate rather quickly so that the baby can latch and feed at the same time that they're breathing. And so most of the time that just works out just fine. And so um, it could start as early as those first months. So you're telling me the baby can physically only breathe through their nose? Yes. Is that why babies can't speak yet? Is because you yes. need... So, oh, yes. Is. I mean, that's... Uh, 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 it's not a short answer, but if I were to try to compose a short answer, um, I it, it is because the soft palate and the epiglottis, which is a structure I can actually uh, point to this particular model here, what we see is the soft palate and the epiglottis are locked. They're closed so that there's a breathing tube that's separate from the feeding tube. And that exists for the first three to four months. And about the beginning of the third month of life, the tongue, the base of the tongue and epiglottis descend. It's called laryngeal descent. And the reason for that is so that they could start developing the ability to speak. Every other mammal or mammalian species on the planet doesn't have that ability. It's only humans that have that. And you can see here in this adult where there is this separation from the epiglottis and the soft palate. So now air moves very differently such that now you can create language. When these are two, when they're closed like this, you can only make sounds. So a lion can roar, a dog can bark, 
a monkey can make some... A baby can cry. Yeah, a baby certainly can cry, but that's not language. It's not. And so the downside of that is that now it increases the risk for choking because now the brain has to govern these functions of swallowing and speaking and breathing all at the same time. And it's not a small matter. So that, that's a big discussion. No other mammal can breathe through their mouth. No other mammal can speak. No other mammal can choke. Typically not. I mean, yes, they can, but it's very, very rare because of that soft palate epiglottis lock. And there's a lot of literature. Like Victor Nagus, who was um, uh, an otolaryngologist back in the 1900s that wrote a lot about it. And um, back, uh, he, he's a very big contributor in comparative biology. And he identified this phenomenon. Very interesting. Um, it, it's almost as if choking, mouth breathing, it's a byproduct of the language ability that we developed. Well, yes, yes, yes. Let me just first uh, clarify, because people may be thinking, well, a dog has their mouth open and they're panting, they're mouth breathing, right? No, they're not. That's called heat exchange. <clears throat> they actually exchange gas. In other words, carbon dioxide is expelled, oxygen's coming in through the nose. But oh, because they can't sweat, they have fur, they have to maintain the core body temperature and they pant. Uh, other mammals do the same thing, but they're not breathing. It's not actually going to their lungs. It's not going to their lungs, exactly. Um, so back to poor sleeping, we mouth breathe. And that leads to what? That leads to poor sleeping. It leads to snoring, but snoring is bad. Why? I, I don't know. Okay, so we're not supposed to mouth breathe, and we're starting to understand that there was a systematic review in Europe about three years ago where they, the authors looked at studies uh, and narrowed it down to 200, about 240 studies. And one of the conclusions was that um, a child that is mouth breathing is synonymous with um, uh, having growth retardation, meaning that they will we'll have failure to thrive, not grow properly, and largely because they can't breathe properly and sleep properly. And it's during sleep that a lot of growth function occurs. A lot of metabolic uh, function occurs during that period of time. And if you're not doing that well because you're mouth breathing, then there are perturbations in those very important functions during a very important formative time in that child's life. So mouth breathing should never happen unless you have a cold for a day or two. So in that formative time, when mouth breathing, does mouth breathing affect the form of the face? Yes, during growth and development, um, the first two years of life is what is called neural growth. It's when the brain is growing very, very rapidly and the face that happens to lie below the brain case doesn't really start its growth 
um, significant growth uh, until after that. And that growth will continue all the way through to late, uh, late teens, you know, early 20s in that period of time. Well, early on in the formative years, if you're mouth breathing, then the jaws are not able to grow properly for a couple of reasons. One is when you're nose breathing, that resistance of the air coming in through the nose, not only does it humidify, purify, and moisturize the hay, in other words, condition it before it goes into the lungs, but that resistance actually stimulates the bone cells in the mid face to start becoming wider, to start becoming larger. Well, if you're not breathing through the nose, they remain stunted in growth, including the palate. The other part of it is when you're breathing that way, you're mouth breathing, the tongue is not where it needs to be. The tongue is largely also involved in expansion and three-dimensional growth of that mid-face. Where does the tongue need to be? It needs to be on the roof of the mouth. And, and so if it's not, then you have other muscles that are influencing that growth to make the faces narrower mm. and longer. So it's a very big discussion, but summarize it by saying that how we breathe has a huge influence on how our faces grow. And so I have many adult patients, as an example, who had braces because they had crowding and it was not recognized. And they might have even pulled teeth out to accommodate the teeth that were there. But the bigger problem was not the teeth, it was the bone that housed the teeth. And so they had a mid-face deficiency. So I would describe to some of my patients, adult patients to say, you have a mid-face of an eight-year-old. I actually have seven, eight, nine-year-old kids that have a wider palate than some of my adult patients. So that kind of gives you an idea of what the, you know, what the problem is. So mouth breathing, not only is it leading to poor sleep, it's leading to less jaw development, a narrow face, crooked teeth. Is that correct? Oh, no, no question. Let me just say what average person would understand is, is very pro-inflammatory. You know, after COVID, everyone has heard the term um, uh, uh, cytokine storm that makes us really sick. You have all these inflammatory markers that are called cytokines that create havoc. So inflammation is the body's way of solving a problem. It could be infection or um, some dysfunction. Well, when you're mouth breathing and have sleep fragmentation, it actually upregulates or increases the expression of a number of very important cytokines, IL-6, TNF-alpha, um, very uh, highly sensitive C-reactive protein. These are just molecules that um, wreak havoc. And some of those problems are, they lead to arterial stiffness, subclinical atherosclerosis. Um, it uh, also leads to hypertension. It's predicted for type two diabetes and obesity later in life, hypertension. Uh, creates cognitive problems, ADD, ADHD. So we may be talking about crooked teeth, but when you start looking at the medical comorbidities and really understanding what's going on beyond the scenes that's ignored, it's a huge health problem. 
bottom line, it's inflammation. How we breathe either allows for wellness or disease and dysfunction. So kind of taking us down a path here, I guess I asked, why do we uh, sleep poorly, mouth breathing? Well, why do we mouth breathe? If it's so bad, why, why do some humans just default to it? Well, it's, it's a plan B. Um, very important from the moment you're born to the day that you die. And the most important function physiologically for your body is to take the next breath. It's not even worried about breathing five minutes from now. And that's run by the autonomic nervous system. It's all going on, it's life support. And so if you can't breathe through the nose, then you breathe through the mouth to be able to live the next five minutes or five months, regardless of what the consequences are that may or may not be understood. So let me just cite a very uh, uh, interesting and important study to make this point. So Dr. Harvold, um, who uh, was an orthodontist, looked at this with an experiment using monkeys, Reese's monkeys, um, a couple decades ago. And what he did is he sewed silicone plugs in the um, monkeys' noses, forcing mouth breathing. And what he found is all the monkeys became sick, but they also had different growth patterns that were not optimal. Their faces got longer, and each of the monkeys expressed the problem slightly differently, which is very confusing. In fact, it was very confusing to the orthodontic community at the time because they were saying, how could you have so many different problems with just one etiology or one cause? And therein lied the problem for many years is they say, well, it has nothing to do with it. But when you start understanding, it makes total sense because different individuals, whether a human or an animal, may respond differently. And so, so, in fact, one of the monkeys actually died. And, and so when they removed the silk plugs to reestablish nasal breathing, the facial growth pattern started correcting the way it was intended, nature intended it to occur, uh, but it never quite caught up to the way that monkey should have optimally grown. So yes, they lived, but there were many consequences that uh, that resulted. So, well, that's very interesting. But I mean, people aren't walking around with silicone plugs in their nose. So why do they mouth breathe? Well, they may have a lot of swelling or very narrow nose, and as a result, they um, find it difficult to breathe through the nose. Or they may have a deviated septum where on one side of the nose, there's no patency or openness. They can only breathe through the other side. And there's this phenomenon called the nose cycle. It's been well documented. About every 90 minutes, one of the valves, external valves opens and the other one closes. And then when that period is done, the other one opens and then the other one closes. Now, you might consciously not be aware of that at all because you're just breathing. You're not really sensing which nostril you're breathing through necessarily unless it's super congested. 
But what ends up happening was, is when the open valve or the open side of the nose that closes because of the nasal cycle, and now you're forced to breathe through the side that has a deviated septum where there's not really good air passage, there's high resistance to breathing, you're not consciously thinking about it. You just end up parting your lips and breathing through your mouth. Um, think about athletes that are world-class athletes. They put on breathe rights. Why do they put on breathe rights? To enhance that very important function even more. And the studies show that actually slows down heart rate, increases performance. The brain can think faster. And so, um, in fact, in sports, we know this culturally because when the guy that's supposed to win the game by hitting the last two free throws at the last few seconds of a game misses him, we say he choked, right? Well, what's that all about? That's about breathing. So when that happens is it upregulates or stimulates a stress response. And when you're stressed, you don't function very well. You don't think. And, and you know, anybody that's known uh, somebody who's panicked, they run into walls, they can't get, you know, they've got horror movies that almost joke about how people are running into each other and they can't get away because they cognitively shut down. So we're supposed to be able to breathe very calmly, like the firefighter that's able to stay calm and rescue all those people in that burning building. They're calm when everyone else is panicking. They're breathing calmly. They're in what's called parasympathetic coherence. So when you have a narrower nose or, or airway, you're not going to choose that over breathing through your mouth. Why would someone have a, a narrow airway? Is that just genetic? It, well, it's uh, there's perhaps a genetic predilection or um, potential greater in one individual or the other. But for the most part, we now understand after the Human Genome Project was concluded in 2003 at a cost of uh, more than a billion dollars, we thought we'd have a lot of answers to a lot of these questions. And it was very different than what we thought. And one of them is, is that environment play, places a much bigger role in um, health, like growth and development. So if you're a baby that's born in development, so if you're a baby that's born that can't breathe very well through your nose for whatever reason, or um, a, a child, because now you have swollen adenoids or tonsils, um, you are not going to breathe well, you're not going to sleep well. And this is, it's a downward spiral. It's not just one thing that's occurring, it's many things that's bombarding the body. And yet the person's breathing, they're living, but maybe they're not doing as well in school, maybe they're hyperactive, maybe they talk back, maybe they have all these different manifestations that we might even say is a personality trait, not really recognizing you know, what the problem is because they're not sick as we define it, but they actually are. So the environment is causing people to, to breathe through their nose what are, or to breathe through their mouth. What are some factors in the environment that could do that and, and how are they? Well, it, it, oh gosh, there, there, there are many things. Like for instance, um, bottle feeding versus nursing mm -hmm. uh, it influences how 
uh, the face grows early on. And we now understand this, where in um, obstetrics, you know, the bottle was um, a short-term solution to a mom who perhaps maybe could not produce milk. As it turns out, maybe she could, maybe she couldn't. But the bigger issue is that the baby maybe was not able to latch and create a good seal because there was a tongue tie. And that's its own discussion, but that's just an example of an environmental factor. So what do we do? You know, we give them, they have to eat, so you give them food in a bottle. If you look at nature, look at mammals, how they feed, um, you look at um, humans in developing countries, the way they feed is very different than the way you would feed with a bottle. You know, you're either mom's laying down and the pup or the mammal of whichever mammalian species is actually drawn the milk. Um, uh, mom is rather passive and the child or the pup or the animal's actually more active in that function. And even in say some developing countries, the mom's putting the child on the lap and having the child latch upright. Well, what do we do with bottle feeding? We put the baby on its back. So it's like gravity helps. Gravity is making it worse. And so they're, they're drawing the milk too quickly, too easily. And so that leads to compensatory feeding patterns. The tongue starts working differently because they have to breathe rapidly and swallow without choking. And so then they develop what are called central pattern generators, compensated central pattern generators that now start affecting how those muscles function like those monkeys that I just said, they function differently. And so the face forms differently than if you fed the way you were naturally, the way nature intended, then you'd have a nor- just a normal, beautiful head and facial growth that's happening less and less now. So that's just one environmental factor. Before we go into the next one, um, so, but I, I see some babies that are like working pretty hard to get uh, to get milk out of the bottle also, is are they just as well off as, as a baby that's breastfeeding? Well, I don't know. Maybe that's a different problem because by definition, when you're feeding out of, uh, off of a bottle, um, the fluid comes out very easily. Okay. okay. Maybe you've seen some exception, but there are companies now that recognize this problem and they've developed... Um, bottles that more closely resemble mom, where it does create more effort. So that's part of the point, is that the infant has to work harder to recruit the muscles of the uh, of the face, and the, more importantly, the mas- masticatory monk, uh, muscles to draw out the milk. Mm. And that muscle function mm. is what stimulates bone growth. Okay. If the baby hat doesn't have to work very well, very much, then those muscles aren't so active, so that bone is not as stimulated through those formative years of growth and development. So you have aberrant or abnormal growth of the face that you may or may not recognize. It may look very nuanced, but it's actually very significant. So because that muscle's not developing as much, the bone isn't developing as much. That shows facially 
they might not have as good looking of a face. Or jaws are too far back. Right. But that muscle, or the lack of strength that they have in them in that muscle, is that the reason they mouth breathe? Um, no, it, it, it's not really the reason. Um, in fact, going back to um, uh, Dr. Christian Guimano at Stanford, there were two ENTs, otolaryngologists, um, Dr. Stupak and Dr. Park, that wrote a paper uh, about four years ago uh, to describe what they called the Guimano musculoskeletal hypothesis. And basically, they challenged about a hundred years of evidence and thinking in otolaryngology or ENT, where it was believed by the medical community that um, uh, the growth pattern that's called adenoid facies, what we're describing, was actually caused by inflammation in the um, uh, tonsils. And what they say, it's the other way around. It's the facial growth pattern that resulted in having the tonsils become enlarged. They flipped everything upside down and um, actually have really good data to show that the problem actually starts with how you breathe and feed very early in life and that the tonsils become enlarged, not as a result of infection, although they could end up having inflammation and infection, but as a result of the turbulence from the mouth breathing where you're not supposed to be breathing through the mouth. Interesting. Supposed to be breathing through the nose. Yeah, so many people have to get their tonsils removed. But that's a newer problem, I assume, right? We haven't been removing tonsils. We haven't been able to, right? Well, yeah, actually, you bring up really interesting um, study back uh, in 1932 that was published in 1932. And let me just, if I could describe, because I think it's interesting. And it kind of speaks to how we can oftentimes, very smart, well-intended providers can make significant errors in how we treat our population. Um, And what these uh, researchers from the American Child Health Association did is they picked a sample of a thousand children from the New York City public schools. And after finding that 65% of these kids had already had their tonsils removed, the um, researchers took the remaining kids and sent them to a group of school doctors to have their tonsils examined. And the school doctor said in that first group that 46% of these kids need to have their tonsils removed. So what the researchers did is they took the remaining kids who were told had good tonsils to a second group of school doctors. And 44% of those kids were told needed to have their tonsils removed. And so the researchers mercifully just did it one more time that they took the remaining kids now that had been told by at least two groups of school doctors that their tonsils were okay to a third group of school doctors. And wouldn't you know, 44% of those kids were told needed the procedure. So the main conclusion of the study was that the decision to remove the tonsils was not so much related to the condition of the kids as it much was to the standards and the opinions of the doctors. And so it was very anecdotal. It was, had nothing to do with science. And so it wasn't until the mid 80s that physicians 
openly conceded that 50 to 80% of tonsil removals was probably not indicated. So doing the right thing wrong doesn't benefit the patient. And it wasn't until 1991, a seminal white paper came out that changed the reasoning for when you remove tonsils. Now I'm gonna argue that the pendulum swung way too much to one side now, where sometimes kids need to have their tonsils removed and it's really difficult to get them to be removed. But the point is, is that we can make bad decisions when we really don't understand or it's not science driven. So um, tonsils are very important. Nature wouldn't give us this tissue unless it had a reason, but it starts as Stupak and Park would argue in this paper with how we breathe right from when we're born. That that creates the risk. Again, let's go back to the environment to answer your question. The environment causes this cascade that leads to a bad surgery, a bad procedure. Wow. So the standard for removing tonsils, it's, it's swung way more into uh, uh, where less people can get them done, but still know a lot of people getting their tonsils removed. They usually should, it sounds like, but... What's causing their tonsils to be inflamed? Is it the mouth breathing? Is it? So, yeah, so that's it. So, uh, what, you know, I tell my parents or I tell the patients if you catch it early enough where the tonsils do, do not become what's called grade four kissing tonsils, where they're so large they meet in the midline and they're not fibrotic with antigen. So, antigen could be from stomach reflux or from cold turbulent air hitting them where now they will not shrink. If you catch them early enough and you could foster nasal breathing, you can actually shrink those tonsils rather quickly. So we can reverse a lot of it. And it's not by taking an antibiotic per se, that's really not the problem. By the way, another problem that's absolutely related to this is recurrent otitis media or recurrent earaches that's absolutely related to this whole problem, but that's a different discussion. But you can obviate the need or decrease the need for removing tonsils if you understand the problem and you take steps to foster proper nasal breathing, either by neti pot, things like you know taping, myofunctional therapy, foster what nature planned to begin with, and you could shrink those tonsils and then now you could breathe better. And then over time, as you also expand the palate, make things, it, 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 it becomes a non-issue. So what are some other environmental factors uh, that lead to mouth breathing? Oh gosh, there's so many, it's, you know, um, it could be pollution, smog, allergens, mites, for, causes swelling. Um, you can go ahead and, and uh, unwittingly buy a pet gerbil or hamster for your five-year-old and not realize that the kid's allergic to the hamster dander that happens to be in their room and all of a sudden their mouth breathing because they have that swelling in their nose and now they start going down that path. So those are just a few examples of environmental factors. Um, certain foods that can create allergens and mucus that affect first and foremost breathing. The diet is a secondary risk factor and yet it seems like that's really what 
tends to be focused on is, you know, elimination diets and doing all those things that are important, but kind of missing the elephant in the room, which is really beginning important, but kind of missing the elephant in the room, which is really beginning with breathing. Okay. So you have babies that they might be bottle feeding instead of breastfeeding. And so they're not developing certain muscles they have to develop. And then what happens after that for them? Well, let me just step back a little bit and say that um, because some moms cannot nurse and that's okay or choose not to nurse, that's okay. The point is to understand the risk factor that comes along with feeding differently than what nature intended. There are many things that can be done to uh, address that solution. Myofunction therapy, uh, it's muscle therapy, repatterning the way the tongue works. Um, in fact, there's a book by Gil Rapley uh, that um, wrote a book called Baby Led Weaning that addresses part of this problem. A good sleep and language pathologist or occupational therapist understands that as well. So there are strategies that can address the um, need to repattern because you don't nurse. So get the muscles functioning the way they should be. Get the tongue up on the roof of the mouth so that the child is breathing through the nose with a proper swallow, lips together, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, it doesn't exactly make sense though because the babies are working that muscle ideally um, if they're breastfeeding, but then they, they just go and eat baby food. And that well, doesn't... that's another risk factor. Um, I would argue that beech nut food and Gerber's are some of the worst things that we foisted upon the public. It's almost in the category of removing tonsils. You know, it's like there was no science to justify um, making the food staged right. because that never happened in nature and in developing countries. What happens is mom breastfeeds for whatever the first couple years of life. There are many reasons for doing that as well. But then maybe starts introducing solid food to the child, maybe pre-choose it a little bit or maybe choose uh, chooses softer foods, let's say like a banana, so that the baby starts developing the neurology and the strength of a proper swallow as the epiglottis descends so that they don't choke. And then from there, they graduate to maybe some uh, soft meats or chicken or uh, vegetables. Pureed food actually creates a number of problems. Number one, it, it ends up fostering muscle hypotonicity. The muscles don't really develop the proper chewing cycle. Uh, and by the way, there are dozens of muscles that are involved in a proper mature swallow. So it's not just one or two muscles that fire in a very important sequence that if it's not correct, you end up having problems, whether it's a tongue thrust, a side thrust, creates all kinds of dental problems. But you could get those muscles patterned correctly. It's like having a bad golf swing. You start just... Uh, you get a coach that teaches you how to swing the, the golf club or the, the bat properly to hit the ball and connect. It's the same thing. It's, it's, uh, but this is to save your life. And so um, 
pureed food is not to say that you can't use it, but it's a problem culturally that has resulted in a global worldwide problem why our faces are not developing properly. So look at what the average kid likes to eat because they have this resultant texture aversion. They don't like the hard foods because they're used to the soft foods. So what do they like? Chicken tenders, fries, um, you know, McDonald's. Not to say that McDonald's is bad, but just like fast food that has many, many problems. Number one, it's calorically dense with very little work to chew. Mm. And so that also ha- ends up leading to an obesity uh, problem, but that's not the primary problem, although it tends to be focused as a, but that's not the problem. problem. The primary problem begins with um, not chewing properly that causes our faces and it upregulates all these cytokines, it's the inflammatory markers that metabolically uh, re, re, uh, results in metabolic uh, disorders. So we're so efficient now with the, the foods we're eating, we're getting a lot of calories for not a lot of work. It's almost our own detriment that the muscles aren't building. It's kind of like we don't have to lift as much as we might have had to um, a long time ago. So we kind of go to the gym to make up for it, but we have nothing to make up for it when it comes to, to chewing. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a really good, um, good example um, that, that you used is, is, you know, back in the Paleolithic period. Paleolithic period. That, that's really classically um, where our faces were correct the way nature intended. In fact, from digs thousands of years all over the world, we never saw the problems that we see now. We never saw dental crowding never really saw tooth decay unless it was a disease. We never we never saw people with crooked teeth, like cavemen. Never, never. Cavemen had perfectly straight, straight teeth. Never, unless it was a diseased population. Really? And that's very well documented. But let me just say that that um, to kind of um, uh, address that is, you know, what we're talking about is that we used to, in the Paleolithic period, spend six to eight hours chewing food. It was not very calorically dense. It'd be a tuber and, and maybe every once in a while uh, a, a clan would share an antelope that it caught. Right, like the vegetables, they take a lot to chew, but then they don't get and a lot of meat. calories for it. And the and meat. Don't even meat. Me, I mean, there are books written on it, uh, Fork Over Knives, talking about how utensils started changing, how we ate, and so slowly but surely, that's another environmental risk factor. I'm not saying I want to go back to the Paleolithic period, but it started changing some very, very basic functions that affected how we developed. And... Um, Pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, the medical and dental anthropologists have been talking about this for decades, and now we're starting to connect some dots in healthcare to understand some of these problems that uh, relate to the risk for acquiring non-communicable pro-inflammatory diseases of modern living. I, I did want to bring up, this skull is from... About, about 90 to 100 years ago, yes. Okay, and the teeth of this skull? No, no crowding. There were no orthodontists back then. 
it's interesting. It doesn't seem like they're no orthodontist back then. But even greater than the fact that the teeth are straight is more importantly is the width of the palate. Okay. Okay. And if you look, the width of the palate also portends to the width of the nasal fossa, how wide the nose through which we breathe is so that there's less turbulence. There's less resistance to breathing. They're pretty wide. Are, is it accurate that these teeth are white on here? Well, not really because they're dehydrated okay. and, and when teeth dehydrate, they lose their translucency and all that. But yeah, they were white, they're straight. And, uh, and th by the way, that's not the exception. If you go back, you know, 500 years, a thousand years, um, it, it's, it, it even looked better than this. Yeah, if you have perfectly straight teeth now without braces, that, that is an exception. It's, it's rare. In fact, there's a study that came out uh, about 18 months ago looking at worldwide malocclusion it's in the mid-90s, um, all over the world. Even in um, New Guinea, where the Aborigines are there, there's a whole project that um, have gone to help rescue that population that started adopting modern life. And they started getting sicker and sicker. It's kind of like Pottinger's cats. It's um, a, uh, an individual during World War II that started you know, feeding cats uh, food that wasn't native to cats. And the first generation, the, kit, the kittens started getting smaller. Second generation, there was failure to thrive. By the fifth generation, fifth, maybe sixth generation, the cats were sterile. And it took many, many generations to get them back to um, eating the way and feeding the way they were supposed to, to be healthy felines. And so, um, you know, you hear more and more now on TV, um, farmers, dogs, and, and, you know, foods that are more appropriate for how these dogs are supposed to eat, because we're making our own pets unhealthy, kind of a reflection of our own environment. Yeah, so that's interesting. People tend to say foods are unhealthy, because of like the nutrients or what's in the extra fat, but actually, Processed foods are unhealthy for that reason, sure, but also because, help me out here, they're, they're softer, right? They're more processed, it, therefore you chew less, you work less right. to chew. It's, it's the form in which they come that, uh, not necessarily even with what's in it, although um, that's just a huge discussion. There, there are many, many problems with that. But you could still eat very healthy with having foods where you know you're chewing, chewing more, and there are things that you could do myofunctional therapy. It doesn't mean that you have again go back to the Paleolithic period. Just recognize it, you know, for what it is. Unfortunately, you know, we're only starting to discover that from how babies are born, how they nurse, uh, soft foods. Um, that's leading to an epidemic of sleep apnea that causes many end organ diseases that are treated as its own standalone condition that has a root cause upstream that people aren't paying attention to. Because again, 
we're highly specialized. We're incentivized to become, to learn more and more about less and less till we kind of lose our global view of how the human body works. Um, I believe in a more integrated approach in working with my specialty um, colleagues and understanding underlying etiology or root cause. There's kind of a, a joke or like a saying that it's like, oh, that's a, another consequence of the Industrial Revolution. But actually, it seems like that holds in this case, that, that um, we're less attractive, but more importantly, function less, or function worse, don't sleep as well because of, of what processed foods, baby food, bottle feeding. These are all things that we should try to avoid. Well, then I said there, there, there are many, many, many factors, and and um, you know, let's just step back a little bit because we could say, well, really, is this really the truth? If you look at big data, if you look at the uh, data coming from the World Health Organization, looking at the top ten causes of death worldwide, and comparing industrialized countries to developing countries, in industrialized countries. Over 90% of the, of the um, 200 million deaths, two-thirds are from causes that largely were non-existent decades ago. Obesity, so, choking. Well, cardiovascular disease, um, problems with you know, uh, cognitive function, you know, all the metabolic disorders. Um, so we used to die of trauma, a spirit of the head or an ax to the head in battle. Mosquitoes. Uh, mos- yeah, uh, malaria, um, typhus, yellow fever, all those things. That's characteristic of developing countries, right? Where we solve that problem. But our environments actually contributed much uh, more to the body count, if you will, and uh, if you look, there's a trend line. They repeated that study from 2000 to 2016, and that data is actually accelerated. There's more heart disease. There's more depression. You know, there's uh, more of, of these pro-inflammatory preventable diseases than ever before. And so um, when you start looking at that data, you cannot deny it. And then say, well, what has changed? Well, it's been our environment. And we know that from how we used to live in the Paleolithic period to about the agricultural revolution, which is about 10 to 12,000 years ago, where we started to understand how to grow our own food. That's called the agricultural revolution around the Fertile Crescent, where we started farming and then we started domesticating animals. And so things started changing, and then we started storing our grains for the winter. And then it wasn't until the industrialized industrial revolution about 500 years ago that there was another inflection. Then we started processing food, you know, we started bringing in sugar. So there's this, this change that you can graft in our species that's dramatically changed, and literally from a geologic point of view, in a nanosecond. It's been very, very, and it's accelerating. So yes, you may say life expectancy has gone up, but 
it's become untenable from a financial point of view because it's very expensive to treat chronic disease. People can live with chronic disease for 20, 30 years with medications and it's a whole political discussion. That's not the way we're supposed, we're supposed to live all the way up to you know the last year or two and then die. But right now we're living longer, we figured that out with pharmaceuticals and surgeries and all kinds of things to address environmental comorbidities. So yeah, this is a huge discussion. I, I say that the problem in healthcare is not so much the access to care, which is where the argument tends to be, which is, you know, like, I need access to care. We need a different kind of care that really understands more of root cause. Maybe we can find the perfect balance, right, between the developing countries and then like the problems we have here. There's some middle ground where like we don't have malaria, typhus, but then we also don't have heart disease. Um, we don't have chronic diseases. We're not highly medicated through the end of our life. You know, we have we have high life expectancy, but also high quality of living. Yes, that's the point. There's a difference between being well and not being sick. Mm. And our allopathic healthcare system, I was trained in it, and definitely is amazing, but has its limitations, is very good at treating signs and symptoms, surgeries, devices, medications, but it misses root cause because we're in a healthcare system that makes a lot of money doing that. So to reverse that and to look at root cause means we have to go back to the drawing board. All right. Anything else you want to add? I think oh, we can go on for days. I know. We but can. let's end this episode. And I think in the next episode, we can drill down and perhaps we'll get questions from our followers that we can um, address uh, the next time. But uh, thank you for the opportunity to spend this time and discuss these very important things. We hope that the format of our casual conversation provides a construct for how to think about the problem rather than just saying how it is. In order to stimulate a continuing conversation and give room to ask your own questions or comments, please follow us on Facebook at Mark A. Cruz DDS or on Twitter at Mark Cruz DDS.